Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Today's guest is well known as a political and social commentator. He was a key member of the Labour Party for many years, advisor to Dick Spring, also served as chief executive of Bernardo's Ireland. It's a pleasure to welcome Fergus Finlay. And Fergus, tell us about your formative years. Um, I was born in Dublin and went to Pres Bray. Um, uh, and um, my father was transferred to Cork in his job. He worked for Lingus and they, they opened up an office in Cork when I was about uh, 15. So I went to Cork then and just in time to join Prez Cork for my leaving cert. Um, I also discovered in the process what a lousy rugby player I was because <laughs> I had played rugby for Prez Bray. Um, I'd been chosen by uh, I'd been chosen by Brother Malachy in Prez Bray to play in the second row. Um, and his reasoning, um, and Brother Malachy was a lovely man, absolutely lovely man. His reasoning was, he said, with a behind like that, Finlay, you must be able to push. Um, and I, I did, I could push, all right. Then I, I so I transferred then to uh, Pres Cork, and when I got to Pres Cork, our out half was a fellow called Barry McGann, and our scrum half was a fellow called Donald Canniff, both of whom went on to have very, very distinguished careers for Ireland. And I suddenly realised that I played rugby in a completely different <laughs> league. Uh, to anyone in, in Pres Cork. And I think I found myself struggling to make the fifth team down there. And Fergus, how how did the Corkies uh, react to the arrival of a dub into their midst? It takes Cork people a long time, Dick. Yeah. Um, I, when I go to Cork a lot now, I love Cork. I've always loved it. Um, and uh, I, I greg them um, when I go by saying that I'm a better class of Cork person because I've chosen to be a Cork person. <laughs> Um, that anyone can be born in a place, but be, choosing it, um, you know, that's being born in Cork is just an accident of birth. Um, but if I explained to them that I did my leaving cert here, I did my degree in Cork, I married a Cork woman, three of my four children were born in Cork, I, I have, you know, a long history of connections with Cork, trade union, industrial relations connections with Cork. The answer I always get is, how are they in Dublin anyway? <laughs> you know, they... they, they um, they're a clannish crowd, Cork, as much as I love them. Um, I know that even my children aren't accepted as Cork people because they were only born there. <laughs> they have to raise their families there and, you know, have a, antecedents of all kinds. But um, we'll get there in the end. But you, my, my application for citizenship is still in somebody's entry somewhere. Yeah. But you did seem to gain that quiet self-confidence of Cork people. <laughs> I, I've never been accused of lacking self-confidence, Des, I have to admit. I have to admit. I, I think of myself as shy and retiring. Um, uh, nobody else thinks of me that yeah. way. I, it, it's an odd thing, though, you know, that that gap between self-awareness and the way other people look at you. Of course. Where, where did life take you then after your degree? I was very heavily influenced by a book when I read when I was 16. Um, and uh, the book was, uh, book was a biography of Jim Larkin um, by uh, a man called Emmett Larkin, who was actually no relation. He was a professor of history. Um, and I was really, really influenced by the life of Jim Larkin. He was, and I suppose to some extent remains, um, my, my hero. Um, 
And there was a passage in that book where he's put on trial um, and where he defends himself uh, and he makes a very rousing speech from the dock uh, in which he says that all his life he was possessed of a burning desire uh, to close the gap between what ought to be and what is. And that sentence stuck in my head when I read it and it, it kind of shaped me and formed me. Um, uh, and, and I think, uh, and, and I'm, this isn't blowing my own trumpet because I failed more often than I've succeeded, but I think that thing about wanting to close the gap between what ought to be and what is, uh, is what kind of got me started. Um, I, I, from that moment on, I wanted to be a trade union official. I was offered a job as, um, as the general secretary of a trade union when I was 21. Um, and uh, so that was my first connection with Larkin. He too was a general secretary. My second connection with Larkin was that I made a complete and total bags of the job. I was desperate. Well, um, you I were tried very, very young. Hard and I worked very hard. I was very young. I was very young. And it was an unrecognised trade union. And uh, they, they were quite common in those days. It was kind of a, a bit of a rebellious uh, crowd in the post office. Um, and they needed somebody a lot more mature than me. A, a very famous Irishman called Jack McQuillan had been general secretary before that and had gone into politics and had featured quite prominently in politics. Um, but they, he was succeeded by me and I worked every hour that God uh, brought, but it didn't work. Um, I wasn't good enough. Um, and I ended up unemployed. And it was around the time I ended up unemployed that I met my wife. So my wife and I spent the first nine months of our marriage uh, pregnant and unemployed. And then I became a trade union official again, at this time in the Workers' Union of Ireland, as it was, whose general secretary was Dennis Larkin. So that was my third connection with Larkin. He was big Jim Larkin's son and, and a man that I grew to love and admire very much. There's a, there's a that was a, a, tra a traumatic time when you say you weren't good enough in the job was it lack of experience or was it yes yeah. yes didn't know my arse from my elbow didn't understand politics uh, didn't understand the law uh, thought I knew everything um, <laughs> and and uh, couldn't be told anything um, I had one great moment um, I, I discovered a loophole in the law uh, this was a post office and we weren't recognised uh, and we couldn't really negotiate. But what we could do is we could prosecute the minister for failings under the Office Premises Act. Um, and I prosecuted the minister who, this will tell you how old I am, Des, the minister was Erskine Childers. Um, I prosecuted the minister and I represented the union myself in the courts um, and we won our case. You couldn't lose those cases because it was all about facts. You know, the toilets were too small or, you know, the space, the office spaces were too small or whatever. Once, once you had the, your measurements right, you couldn't lose. And so I, I took my first case in uh, the four courts and I won and I beat the minister and it made headlines. And I came out and I got into my old car to drive back to Cork. It was an old battered Ford Corsair, dreadful yoke altogether. Um, and I was driving down the Keys on my way to Cork and I turned on the radio and on came Elgar's pomp and circumstance. Um, and I felt like a king driving down the road. It was my greatest, up to that point, my greatest triumph uh, at work. Um, the only triumph I had in that job, uh, although I, I had some great moments in subsequent trade union jobs. Yeah. <clears throat> but you got married and, and then lost your job. That's a, that was a tough time. Got married on the 22nd of December. Um, and lost the job on the 31st of December. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was, um, I, I think if Frida had known then what she discovered later, 
uh, she mightn't have been quite so keen. But that, that um, would that uh, wouldn't make her unique, though. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not. Perhaps not. Fred and I had uh, Fred and I had. Um, an odd sort of start of our relationship. The, the first night we ever met was on a blind date. Um, uh, and she was blind and I was blind drunk, <laughs> I think was the way, best, fairest way to describe it. Um, in, in a place called Castle Townsend, two mutual friends of ours, Mick and Gretchen Fitzgerald, um, sort of hooked us up and we went down to Castle Townsend in my car uh, and I made a disgrace of myself. and. At the end of the night, I don't know how we got home, but at the end of the night, Frida uh, indicated uh, gently to Gretchen that if she never saw me again, <laughs> that'd be okay. Um, and then we were married three months later. Um, we, we, it, it was one of those, you know, can't be resisted sort of things. And the, the first choice of music that I uh, that I indicated that I would like mm. to play kind of always reminds me of that um, because uh, it was it was the song that. I suppose you would describe as our song. Um, it, it, you know, she found it very difficult to be hard on me when that song was playing on the radio at the time. All right, that's Peter Skeller. I got forgiven a lot. And you're a lady. You're a lady. I'm a man. Well, I, I, you're a lady. I'm a messer. I think was her version of it. But, um, uh, but it was Peter Skeller, and it was very popular at the time, and it kind of summed up the way I felt about her then, and indeed to this day. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. So Fergus, that dramatic beginning to your working career, but the Labour Party you, was to become central to your, to your life. It was. Um, I, I, I worked as a trade union official for a long time and loved every minute of it. And then I probably got a bit burned out and was attracted uh, into to cross the table, as it were, to work at the other side of industrial relations. Um, I got involved in local politics uh, in the Labour Party and I got a phone call from a great friend and mentor of mine, Pat Magner, who asked me if I would uh, do a little work with the new leader of the Labour Party, um, uh, Dick Spring. Uh, I said I would and we had a couple of conversations and then I was asked to write a speech for Dick. Uh, and um, I always remember Pat ringing me up and saying, would you write a speech? They'd been in negotiations about the formation of a government with Gareth Fitzgerald for about a week and a half. And then Dick needed to present this to a conference and needed to get a conference vote as to whether or not they would proceed with the government. Um, and I was asked, they were all exhausted. They've been at it for weeks and weeks and weeks, a bit like what's going on now. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I uh, said, of course, I, of course, I'll write the speech. I'll have a go at it. Uh, tell me what's in the programme for government. And, and Pat Magnus said, no, can't tell you that. Sorry, no, that's all highly confidential until the day. And I, I said, OK, fair enough. Well, well, then tell me what Dick wants to recommend. And he said, no, I can't tell you that either. That's, <laughs> we're, we're keeping all that hush hush. And I said, so, so what should I put in the speech? And he said, what, what do you think? You know, what do you think? Give us a draft anyway. Um, and I was completely stumped, completely stumped. I, I remember going into my office and bringing home um, a typewriter from the office. It was a golf ball typewriter. Um, uh, you wouldn't remember them. Oh, I do. Days, but yeah, they, I do. They were all the rage in those days, and I was very proud of it. And I wrote, I wrote this speech. I stayed up all night writing this speech, and because I knew nothing, I decided that I would write the speech that, as a member of the Labour Party, I would like to hear. Um, uh, and so that's the speech I wrote. Uh, stayed up all night, had a quick shower, got on the train, went to Dublin, handed it to Dick Spring. Um, he crossed out a bit and uh, added a bit and uh, handed it to his uh, secretary, Sally Clark. And um, what I had forgotten, in, in, in nowadays, you know, 
it, you email it up and if there's copying and editing to be done, uh, you cut and paste and all that. Poor Sally had to type the entire thing out from start to finish uh, and incorporate his changes into it and so on. And I went back to Cork and I was due to go to, due to, go to um, the conference to hear my speech, the first speech I'd ever written for a politician, uh, for, for a political leader, the first speech I'd ever written. I was due to go to the conference and Frida went into Labour. So I couldn't go to Labour because Frida was in Labour, if you follow me. Um, and about the same time as the vote was being taken on the formation of the, that government, our fourth daughter, Sarah, was born at, at roughly the same minute. Well. Uh, she was very lucky that she wasn't called Garrett or Dick. Um, um, had she been a boy, she probably would have suffered that fate. Um, but Pat Magna rang the Labour ward more or less at the moment that Frida was, you know, at, at the climax of, mm -hmm. of giving birth. And they wouldn't call me out and until he told them it was a matter of life and death. And then they called me out and he and he whispered on the phone, Dick got the vote through. And I said, oh, no, I can't repeat on radio what I said. But I went back into the Labour ward very quickly. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously that was a high point and there were many highs obviously going in and the excitement of being part of a government. But I presume there's far more stress and drama and than happy moments when you're in government. Well, there's, yeah, there are great highlights. I mean, that was the start of 17 years for me. I worked for 17 years for Dick Spring and then I worked for another couple for, for Pat Rabbit afterwards. So I, I was kind of 19, almost 20 years at it altogether. And and I would count the highs. I, I'd remember a lot of the lows. And I mean, a lot of them have been written about. I, I ended up having a certain relationship with a certain Albert Reynolds. And, um, you know, th that wasn't mm. wouldn't one of the high points of my life. And I suspect not one of the high points of Albert's either. I was involved in um, in the Downing Street Declaration. I was involved in a lot of the drafting work that went into what were called the Joint Framework Documents, which were the immediate precursor of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I was there when the IRA ceasefire happened. Um, and I was also there for a lot of other very, very important stuff. Some highs, some lows. I remember being absolutely miserable and depressed after the first divorce referendum. Um, when we just got completely hammered. And, and again, we, we made a bags of that campaign, but then being elated at the end of the second uh, mm. divorce referendum, which we won by, you know, about half a percent. Uh, and so, like, you know, I'd, I'd have to kind of take out a list uh, yeah. of, of uh, all the stuff. Um, that, that... But my, my overall memory, my overall memory is that we were a fantastic team. The Labour people in you know, in those years and in uh, the several governments that we worked in, we stayed together through thick and thin. We fought for each other. There were people whose names weren't... I, my name wasn't well-known at the time. It became well-known afterwards. It became well-known because of the Albert Reynolds stick spring falling out, really. It wasn't well-known up to then. You pulled the rug from under Albert. Um, well, well, the government. well that's a way of putting it, certainly. I, I have always said that Albert pulled the rug from under Albert. Um, but... but there are those who believe that it was others who were responsible for Albert's downfall. But if, we, if you want a three-hour conversation, we'll, no. we'll, we'll get going down that road. I, but, 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 I mean, Albert and I made our peace in the end. I have written uh, very extensively about Albert. And when he died, um, and subsequently, I, I, I mean, I think the thing that n must never be forgotten about Albert Reynolds there were good things and there were less good things. But the thing that can never be forgotten about him is that there would not have been an IRA ceasefire 
without his singular gifts and his singular commitment and his singular approach. But, but at the same time, there wouldn't have been a durable process uh, that led on without the particular talents and skills and negotiating ability of some of the people around him, especially Dick Spring, who, who made an enormous and often unsung contribution in that area. Sure. Alongside that 18, 19 years with, with the Labour Party, you were very involved in Special Olympics, Fergus Finley. I was. Mm. I was. Special Olympics was one of the loves of my life and remains one of the loves of my life. And, and, uh, um, and, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't something that I volunteered for. It was something that Mandy volunteered me for. Mandy was our first daughter. Um, and uh, Mandy, you know Mandy Des, you've met her. Oh, uh, well, yeah. In fact, I, yeah. I picked a song um, uh, because it, 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 it represents one of those great moments uh, in, in Mandy's life and my life and our life. Mandy was born with Down syndrome uh, and was written off um, very early on by, by medical experts and specialists and so on as, as somebody who would never really amount to much. Um, uh, I, she, she owes an awful lot to herself, to her own fortitude, to her courage and guts and so on. She owes an awful lot, more than that even, uh, to her mother, who was determined, Frida was determined, that Mandy would grow strong and independent. Uh, and, and indeed she did. She became uh, as important a member of the family as Vicky, as Sarah, uh, as Emma. They, all three of my, all three of my other daughters uh, are madly important to me. But, but Mandy was... You know, she was written off and she she still became the first person to represent her country. Uh, and and that was in a Special Olympic Games, an international Special Olympic Games in New Haven, Connecticut. And then she went on to volunteer at the famous World Games in 2003. Those World Games in 2003 would not have happened, in my view, if Mandy hadn't been in New Haven, Connecticut eight years earlier, because that's what started the whole idea that anything they could do, we could do better. Mary Davis and I made a lot of pitching after that uh, New Haven Games. And, and then subsequent to the 2003 Games, Mandy volunteered uh, to go to a World Games in Shanghai in China. And there was a famous night in Shanghai where there had been a number of media people out who had been incredibly supportive of us and uh, were, you know, had worked really, really hard, um, had done an awful lot of broadcasting, worked their socks off. And you were there as well, Des, as well as all those hardworking people. <laughs> Um, Ian Dempsey, yourself, I mean, they were people that to whom we were really grateful. And we took them out for a night in a swanky restaurant um, down on the waterfront in Shanghai. And Mandy was uh, in this restaurant. And as is Mandy's want, she went for a little bit of a wander. Uh, and she came back after a few minutes with this absolutely tall, striking, gorgeous woman. I introduced this very striking woman to the table uh, as her friend Bianca. Uh, and indeed it was Bianca Jagger and we all said our lows and she wandered off into the night and Mandy went off again and then came back with this black American guy uh, who was her friend Quincy yeah. and Ian Dempsey was completely bowled over uh, I remember Ian saying I've never asked anyone for an autograph in my life Mr Jones but could I have yours um, so Quincy Jones the the man who you know had uh, the producer of Michael Jackson man responsible for a thousand hits uh, and so on and he said, um, he, made, he invited Mandy to sing, uh, and Mandy went and got up on a little stairwell nearby and sang, You Raise Me Up. 
Uh, and at the end of it, and, and all the time she was singing, he was saying things like Aaron go bra uh, and so on. And at the end of it, he wandered off into the night, but he hollered over his shoulder, Mandy, you get your people in touch with my people. I'm going to make you a star. Of course, yeah. we never heard of him yeah. again, but but uh, it was a great night. It was very special. And that's why I picked um, You Raise Me Up as my second okay. item. You left out the bit where Mandy said to Bianchi Jagger, do you know Des? Yes. Which <laughs> was sorry. my highlight of it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. You had a very special time with Bernardo's Ireland as well, Fergus. I, yes, I was asked to work to go and I, I was asked to volunteer for Bernardo's um, uh, while I was still working uh, in Polish with Pat Rabbit. And I was, I was amazed. Bernardo's at the time was a very, very quiet, discreet, modest organisation um, who did incredible work uh, with families whose lives had been affected by disadvantage. And, and they tended to work with families. They're known for working with children, but actually the work is much more with families. And I was asked to do some volunteering and I went and met some of the people and I was blown away by the quality of their work and the quality of their commitment uh, and and particularly their commitment to the kids they worked with. Bernardo's is a place where, um, I, I when I when I became CEO later, um, I wanted to kind of up the profile a bit uh, and I got huge resistance from the people who work in Bernardo's because they have these little centres all over Ireland um, very often in local authority housing estates in the in the heart of disadvantage. And I wanted to put neon signs over them and, you know, put Bernardo's in rainbow lights and so on and get our name out there kind of thing. They were absolutely convinced that the right way to go is if you if you need support, if you need a bit of help, if you'd like to pop in for a cup of tea, don't feel you're crossing the door of a charity. Don't feel you're beholden. Just come in and talk to us and we'll make you welcome. And one of their great skills, one of the great skills of the, the whole team that work in Bernardo's is that business of making you welcome, uh, of enabling you to begin to talk about your troubles in a way that is completely non-judgmental, non-condescending, etc. And it starts that way, it starts slow. Um, and and I, I'd never seen anything like this before. I, I'd never seen an organisation that went about its work in such a respectful way. Uh, so then I was asked to become CEO and it took me about eight seconds, I suppose, to make up my mind to become CEO. And I was with the organisation for 15 or 16 years. I, I like to think that without diminishing the, you know, the the very respectful one-to-one relationships that were so important, I like to think that I helped to raise the profile of the organisation and get its message out. I was very struck by the fact that this was an organisation that had a huge amount to say about the world in which children live and about how you could make that a bit better and so on. But it was kind of quiet about how it said it. And and I'm not a particularly quiet sort of person. So I, I got into trouble initially um, because I was critical of public policy and uh, there were certain public servants who thought that I had no right to be critical of public policy. And we ended up kind of, you know, arriving at a point. I, I developed, uh, if you like, I developed a philosophy of advocacy out of all that experience, which which is that I, I believe that you have to criticise what you have to criticise, but you must also try to praise whatever you can. Uh, and I think when you when you work around public policy and try to change public policy that way, you end up getting a lot more done. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't have got anything done in Bernardo's without the incredible quality of the people and the work. My job, and it was a joy, a pleasure, an honour, my job was to tell the story. 
Uh, but their job was to make the story, and and uh, I, I I miss it still. I have to say. Okay, well, you certainly achieved a lot there. Your final musical choice, we could talk all day, but time for your final musical choice. And you were torn between two, Fergus, were you? Oh, I was torn between 10, 15. Right. I mean, give me, you know. I, I, there, are, there are three artists whom I carry in my car, and I have always carried in my car, always. Um, uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, Roy Orbison, and Tom Waits, always. And then I have another CD that I carry in my car, and when it gets worn out, I, I remake it and replace it. And it's it's a, a whole series of operatic areas that I adore, particularly by Maria Callas. So so I could have picked any one of them, but I, I in in my various jobs, particularly the trade union job, the political job, and the Bernardo's job, one of the features of all those jobs was an awful lot of travelling. Um, and I'm one of those people who loves to come home at night. I don't like staying in hotels. Um, I'm, I'm a home bird and, and I'd love to come home. So I will travel late at night. I love talk radio. I love sport on the radio. But when all that is over and there's only music, I listen to music late at night. And I remember driving, and I can still remember exactly where I was. I was just outside Mallow on the way back to Cork. And this fella came on the radio. Um, and I thought, God, he's old. He's very, He's obviously very large. And he's very black. And he was being played by Dave Fanning. Um, and I'd never heard him before. Uh, and it was Tom Waits, mm. who is actually very white, very weedy and small, uh, and not particularly old. Um, and I fell in love with his voice on that journey. The following day, I got uh, a, a CD, and, as you did at the time, um, and I carried it around for years until it burned out of my car. And the song I loved most of it, the song that was that I heard that night, and the first time song I ever heard, uh, is a song which is also a love song. It's a very sad and lonely love song in some ways, um, but but I adore it. It's called Ruby's Arms. And and uh, if I had to pick one song um, that I, I don't know why, I can't hear it ever without thinking of my missus. And, uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons I love it. Absolutely adore it. All right, well, it's a, lov- a lovely way to play us out. And thank you very much for sharing... Uh, your memories with us, Fergus. It was great to You're very kind, you. Jason. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. Th- thank you. So we'll play out then with Fergus Finley's final choice this evening, Ruby's Arms, Tom Waits. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.